0: So idea. what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days?
1: That's got to be one of the toughest parts of, uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment.
0: I couldn't agree more. And that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Patona, a fully Australian owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Patona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors.
1: So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Patona and you like them?
0: I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Patona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. They so can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you, but they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Petona website at patona.com.au and click on Get Started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor, and I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we talk about Zoe Foster Blake's incredible transaction the slump in luxury watch prices and the luxury travel market. And welcome, episode 19. And happy Boxing Day, idea. dear. It is, uh, everyone, the rest of Australia stops this week. Obviously, we don't. We keep plowing through. It's actually one thing that I get super annoyed with, with small business, big business, is businesses that take off, like, as in consumer business that take off a month oh, absolutely during agree. January. I find it just bizarre that, you're a little small business, you're building up a customer base, and then you take a month off and lose that momentum. If you're gonna be a founder of a business, then you've got to be customer oriented all the time. And then that, that means don't shut when your customers are there. Hire somebody else to do it if you want to go away or go away at a different time or whatever. Uh, if you work for, if you and if you don't want that lifestyle, go work for someone else where you have a full shutdown. So there's there's almost always a job for someone that's the right fit. But I don't understand why somebody has caught. A founder mentality, and not every founder is running a billion-dollar business. Many are running very small businesses, but don't have a founder customer-led mentality. If you're not customer-led, and if that's what you want to do, if you want to take a month off in January to go to to go to Rye or whatever, that's great. But don't start your own business and leave and shut it, or get somebody to work for it. Then and don't shut and don't miss the opportunity to grow your business.
1: One of the things I love about small business is that when you walk down the street. Every single shop that you pass that is not part of a chain, just one standalone store, someone woke up and decided they were going to just take the plunge. And this thing that you're seeing, like uh, there's a cafe, is the classic example because almost every cafe is independently owned. The person running that cafe that owns it, this is their dream. This is the thing where they told their friends, they told their family. I'm going to have a go. I'm going to do this thing. And this is like this big passion that they have. And so that is one of the things I absolutely love about small business. Every little shop is somebody's dream, which really makes me happy. Again, I'm going to give you the counter argument to what you're saying that others will say, which is I can get away with opening a business, working for myself and taking a month off over Christmas. So why shouldn't I? And it's a pretty solid argument. The thing is, it doesn't work in many places other than Australia, to be honest with you. But it is a pretty solid argument in Australia.
0: My argument to that would be: your business is serving customers, and if you're not serving customers during a, a key period, where a lot of people are at home and have plenty of time, then you're probably in the wrong business. Or if you don't have a business that's strong enough to hire people to do it. So even let's take another sort of line of thought: that let's say I own a cafe, and the cafe runs better when I'm there because it's always better when the boss is there, and But you can still run it when you're there. And ultimately, if you've got a business that can't run at all with you, if your cafe can't run with you, with a idea not there, then it's probably not a very good business anyway. So you need to be able to keep the cafe open with you not there. If you're desperate to go away in January, go away then, but make sure it stays open. Don't not serve your customers and more importantly, your potential customers is my point.
1: Oh, I see your point. Well, I think you are. I mean, you're in. I mean, right now you're in the UK, so you're not in Australia. But I think when you're here, you're living in the wrong country with those yeah. expectations. Like the service culture in Australia is not fantastic. Once you start traveling the world, you realize that the service culture in Australia is not a fantastic service culture. It's friendly, it's a friendly country. But this idea that says the business owner feels a commitment to the customer. I mean, I, don't, I think you're in the wrong country making that sales pitch. If you go to Taiwan, like I, I spent some time in Taiwan, you just have this overwhelming feeling that all someone on the other side of a service transaction wants to do is make sure that you're happy. Mm-hmm. And not in an over-servicing subordinate kind of way, in a genuine way where they pride themselves on delivering customer satisfaction. It, it is very pervasive in Taiwan. Yeah. I don't think that that... Australia does not, has never struck me as that kind of country. Yeah,
0: yeah that's probably right. I think there's exceptions. But uh, you say I'm in the UK at the moment. I'm in London now. And what struck me being here is just how dark it is. It's actually the shortest day of the year today. I think it's the solstice or whatever it is. It's literally, it's still, it's like almost, what, 7.30 in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning. It's still pretty dark. Uh, I went for a run yesterday at... 6.30 a.m., it was like pitch black. I almost got hit by about five cars <laughs> and a couple of goats. It was it was almost pitch black out there.
1: Are you in London or outside London?
0: I mean, I'm actually – well, my my in-laws live in a place called Hertfordshire, which is about
1: oh, like a half nice. an hour
0: train ride. But I'm in London for the, the next couple of days. Right. With we got a team in London. Uh, and London is – the point I'm sort of making now is London – talk about the cost of living crisis in the UK. And UK probably been one of the – you hear apparently the hardest hit places and. Economy struggling. It is. There are people everywhere. Like there are restaurants are full. Oh, this is a busy week, the pre-Christmas week. There's tourists everywhere. Uh, I went to Edgware Lane, which I'm straight right now. There, which is a very multicultural part of London. People literally everywhere. Um, it is. You wouldn't think there's an economic problem being here. People seem to be spending. Like I went to a. Real, not an expensive restaurant, but not a cheap restaurant for lunch yesterday. for a sort of Christmas thing that was you basically couldn't get a table. It, it's expensive.
1: But it is that time of year, as you said. Like, I mean, I was in the city in Melbourne. I took my daughter, who was on the last podcast, I took her yeah. out um, to. I took her to Pastuso, you know that restaurant, the Peruvian restaurant. Anyway, I thought I'll give her a f-
0: yes, Saint f- Saint guys, isn't I it? No, I'm not really
1: a okay fait with that stuff. Yeah, let, I mean,
0: yeah, but- good business. Good oh, group. you know
1: them? Okay. Well, so I'm, not, but that restaurant I quite like. It's Peruvian, which is you know, so kind of interesting food. And I thought I'll expose her to like some nice cuisine. Not that you know, I'm the anti foodie, but I thought, well, that's nice. I like it, <laughs> and. um it was packed, like, and every restaurant was packed, and so, and the city was packed. So, this is the time of yeah. the year. Like, if it's not packed now, mm. then it's a COVID lockdown, basically. So, that's why <laughs> London is packed, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but Australia economically has been doing yeah, well. That's true. Like, in terms of almost every inflation wasn't as bad, it's bad, but it's not as bad as the UK. The UK was 10%, I think, even more inflation, uh, and gas, gas prices were here were basically doubled year on year. So, UK, and the UK was expensive in the first place. So, UK. Where Australia unemployment's low, inflation is obviously high-ish, but lower than it was. Uh, whereas UK was apparently this basket case, uh, but it's you wouldn't you would not think it's a basket case. It's um, it, it feels as busy as it was last year when and as busy as it was the year before. I, and, and a lot of tourists. like tour, when I, I, I jumped on a, a, ride, a lime bike. Like yeah, I like, like those. I love riding lime bikes around the UK. It's a great way to see the city. You don't need a helmet here. You just jump on. And just riding my bike well, through you you Hyde Park, hel-
1: there are people. I couldn't ride. Hyde Park, people everywhere. Oh, but let me, before you say about Hyde Park, you say you don't need a helmet. But what you mean is it's not unlawful to ride without a helmet. But I would argue that's right. Yeah, it's not you're – your um, success in life predominantly comes from your intelligence, and so I think you <laughs> always need a helmet. Like too risky. That's probably true. Come, come it's work in the emergency um, department of a hospital for a while, and you'll have a new perspective on two wheels. Nothing pays for the uh, nothing pays for the holiday home m- more effectively than mot- the holiday home of the orthopedic surgeon. More effectively than a motorcyclist. Mo- yeah, I'm talking about pushbike, not motorbike. I know motorbike I clearly. Know. Two wheels is like you know, it's a, you wear a helmet. The on interesting two thing
0: with um, with the, the non compulsory helmet advocates, obviously wearing a helmet's preferable, but the the claim I've got a lot of sympathy for this claim is that if you force people to wear helmets, a lot less people ride bikes. You look around the UK, almost nobody's wearing a helmet, rightly or wrongly, uh, but a lot of people are riding bikes. Uh, versus Australia where you can't or – Melbourne or Sydney, We well, say you want to ride a line bike and there's no helmet there, you don't want to wear it. Just, I take my own helmet, but let's say you don't have that, which is what most people don't. You have people who don't ride the bike and instead, get public transport or drive a car or whatever. So the argument is, well, yeah, you're going to have more injuries from people not wearing helmets, but you're going to have an overall healthier society because people are riding a bike more. So the, the, the general argument is forcing people to wear helmets is actually counterproductive to people's overall health.
1: Well, I don't like, well, that's probably true, but also I don't like the whole idea of forcing adults to wear helmets full stop. Like, I think kids should be forced to wear helmets because they're kids. Like, you can force kids to do things. That's fine. But I think in general, you should leave adults to make their own decision. And again, the counter argument to that is, yeah, but when they get knocked off the bike and have a head injury, it's a societal cost, which is true. But, you know, i promise you like alcohol is causing a lot more societal problems than people getting knocked off bikes. And so I think in general you should leave adults to make their own decisions about what's right and wrong because they're adults and just get out of their lives as a government. That's my view on that. Australia
0: just has too many ridiculous laws. Helmet is one of many. Helmets actually one of the less stupid laws, but Australia is just an over-governed society where you can't do anything without being charged or fined or whatever for something. It's uh it, it's it, yeah, I'm probably preaching to Converted. I don't think anybody likes no, being I posted on
1: LinkedIn. Tell me what you think about this. I posted this on LinkedIn. I got a lot of responses. All positive, I didn't I didn't realize you to post it on LinkedIn. <laughs> Very funny. Um, so I posted that they should get rid of local council. It should no longer be an elected government. It should be an administration accountable to the state government, and you should hold them accountable and just vote for the state government you want because let me tell you something – that happened, I want to tell you these two things uh, very briefly, and this this is my argument against local government. Number one, the city of Glenara, near where I live, um, they reduced main road speed limits to 50. Do you know what their rationale was? And what's amazing is they're proud of is this
0: Is that rationale. the state that does that, not Glenara? No, no those, took- those,
1: no. those roads are local council to be able to make a decision on the speed. Really? Yeah. And the reason they reduced it, and they boasted about this, is because by reducing the speed to 50, it will encourage more people to ride and walk and make driving less appealing relative. So basically, my so firstly, reducing the speed limit from 60 to 50, that shouldn't make people more likely to be pedestrians because maybe the first rule is don't let cars drive on the footpath. That will be the – and I don't think that generally happens. So whether they drive 60 or 50 on the road makes no difference. And cycling I understand, but the rationale that they're expressing is basically – we're just going to make life worse for drivers, who are our rate payers, and so I find that infuriating. And the second, I think, just just on would, that, before you go on, I think that yeah.
0: I'm I'm absolutely in favour of reducing driving, increasing riding. It's, it's more efficient, it's healthier. There's for a million reasons riding rather than driving. to argue driving. with
1: that. Yep.
0: But if you're going to do that, you need to create proper bike lanes. That's the issue. And like some councils have sort of done it. And I'm, again, being in London now, they've got. Not always. Sometimes sometimes they're hopeless, but sometimes they have, they've got what's called, called this super cycle lane where you've basically got a road for cyclists. That's amazing. So if you're going to want to penalize drivers, I'm all for that, but give a real option that kids can ride a bike on that, that not – only super fast riders can ride a bike on, have a real option for cyclists and not the half ass options they tend to have at the moment.
1: Well, if you go to Copenhagen, you'll see how you can make things very – like there's completely separated bike roads. But even in most of Europe where they shared, it's pretty simple. It goes like Mm -hmm. this, footpath, bike lane, parking, driving lanes. And so the bikes are never next to cars that are moving. And there's chains between the bike lane and the parked cars. There's
0: quite a few. There's some really good bike lanes. And then yesterday I was riding when there was cars everywhere behind me next to me. So they haven't got it fully right here, but they have got it. If you choose the right lane, and you just got to be careful on on where you go, but if you choose the right ones, but to to your point on that, build proper bike lanes and then people ride a bike. Don't just make it worse for cars.
1: I know, but just the arrogance of saying, we're going to take the rate payers in our suburb and we're just going to make their lives worse. That's actually what they're saying. If they're drivers... We're going to use their own money to make their lives worse. Like that's local government. And then there was another. Oh well, there's another government.
0: Well, local government. Government's a waste of time. Local government. I, I, a good friend of mine, Marcus, is on on the portfolio. He's a he's a he's a star. But you take out. He's an he's an exception to the rule. Most of these local governors are often far left. They're doing it for something to do so they can imposed their views on others it's it's just an incredibly low quality of person unfortunately who's mostly on these councils
1: they spent 2 million dollars on a park upgrade what do you think is the most important thing in a park equipment right yeah I saw that they spent 40,000 dollars of the 2 million dollars on equipment literally the traffic survey cost 20,000 dollars 200k was an art installation <laughs> $1.2 million, I think, was planning in the park. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is almost all of this $2 million was paid for with a grant from the state government. That's you. That's you as a taxpayer. And if you're wondering what the city of Yarra is doing, because yeah. they're not yeah. doing parks, I mean, this is an idiocy, what they're doing is passing anti-Israel Gaza resolutions. That's yeah. what they're busy doing. And it's like, the, I think – Get rid of the elected yeah, representatives, yeah, shut it all down, keep the bureaucracy, and let it report to the general state bureaucracy, put it all under mm. the purview of the state government. That's my argument for local councils.
0: We just get rid of it. What Apart from collect rubbish, I'm not exactly sure what these councils are. You can probably just get rid of it completely, I think. But the state government can do that. I think you can probably get rid of them completely.
1: I'm not, what I'm saying is true, but it's completely true. One team has vests on, you know, coloured vests. That's considered an organised sport. You have to pay money to play in the park. Yeah. But what? I'm a rate payer. I already pay money. No, pay money or else you get out of the park. Needless to say, my interaction with the council official trying to enforce that was not a friendly one and we didn't stop playing. I
0: can't can't see any reason to have councils
1: to exist. Uh, What? They do a few services that could easily be done by other people,
0: like a state government can easily do that. I think they, I'd be getting rid of all of them. I'm just not sure they serve any purpose other than giving these people who have nothing better to do some authority over others. At worst,
1: they're corrupt. At best they're incompetent, basically, is my view of them. Yeah. And yeah. I know And the problem is the odd good one. The but they can go state politics uh,
0: gets overridden yeah, by the election of Like
1: yeah. is there a worse group of yeah. operators than elected officials at the local government level? And like maybe they're perfectly nice people, I don't know, but if we judge them on the outcomes, which is doing stuff like um, collecting garbage less but adding a garbage levy which circumvents the caps on rate increases, I mean, how dishonest is that? So shut it down and save us all a ton of money and don't force me to vote for people I don't have any idea about, just put it all under the state government. I didn't know I was going to rant about that at the front end of this episode.
0: Neither did I, but that's where we get to. <laughs> on that uh, positive note, we'll take a super quick break and back on our very first story on the huge win of Zoe Foster Blake. Uh, Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with?
1: Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I, I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the
0: same. I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We actually used them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically we also used a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair, and the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Madpaws, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300 121 261 or go to www.portal.ventures. For our first story, we have the incredible Zoe Foster-Blake, who did a Kerry Packer and just bought back her iconic go-to skincare business from the collapsed BWX group for pennies on the dollar. Foster Blake had sold a 50.1% stake to BWX for $89 million just two years ago and has managed to buy back that stake for only $8.5 million alongside her co-founder, Paul Bates. This made Kerry Packer selling Channel 9 to Alan Bond for a billion and buying it back for $250 million look like amateur hour with Foster Blake playing the ASX conglomerate like fools. The GoTo deal, which was actually one of the key reasons that BWEX once valued at $500 million, was placed in a receivership in April. Foster Blake had been acting as chief creative officer of GoTo and has now emerged with a 59% stake in the new business and walks away with $90 million less tax for her trouble. Idea we love seeing entrepreneurs have big wins like this. And just How impressive is what Foster Blake has been
1: able to achieve here? Have you forgotten that I wrote about the initial acquisition in the Fin Review at the very beginning? And Because I try to be polite in my articles, but I did flag at the end of that article, I think this might cause a very big problem and I'm not sure Zoe Foster Blake is going to be able to get the second payment that she's owed. The way it worked is that Zoe sold 50.1% of the business to BWX. So, they had control and that's how she got her $89 million payment. But she still owned 49.9%. And the problem is that there was a put option, which means she could force BWX to buy the other 49.9% and pay her $59.2 million in return. And so, don't you think that means... It was going to be very hard for anybody else to buy the 50.1% from BWX except her?
0: No. My, my view is when they go into administration, and I, I, if we've got any receivers on the listen, correct me if I'm wrong, but my view is that 59 million put option isn't secured. It's just a contractual obligation. And as and you know, one of the key reasons business going bankruptcy, and look at WeWork. We talked about WeWork a month ago. We work went into bankruptcy so I can renegotiate all its leases. So you, had, you own a big office building. You lease that office building to WeWork. WeWork owes you $100 million bucks over the next 20 years. And WeWork goes into administration. So they, don't, they don't owe you anything and you can renegotiate that lease. I think this is a, si- a similar example where GoTo owed Zoe $59 because she would have exercised the put option because clearly the business isn't worth anything like that. She could have exercised that option at, after a certain point of time. And to avoid paying that, they said, oh, no, we're in receivership now deal with the receiver. You've got a contractual claim. You sit behind CBA. You sit behind the skewer creditors. I don't know exactly where she sits in the stack, but she sits somewhere
1: down the bottom. That's a good point. The worst outcome would have been if she exercised the put option, the asset transferred to the administrators of BWX, the 49.9%, but they never remitted payment for it because it was unsecured. That would would be a catastrophe for her, right?
0: But she wouldn't have done, presumably she would have done that all at the same time. Yeah. So you exercise the put option and you get it all at the same time. So I don't think she would have ever exposed herself to. She, she presumably got very good lawyers. You yeah. wouldn't expose yourself to any timing risk. But that I don't think she could have actually played this in a way any better. The only way she could. The only way she could have played it better is you exercised the put option last year, then gets the hundred, gets the one hundred forty million, and then buys it back for eight million anyway, which would have been an even better result. But
1: I, I don't think it had mature. I don't think the put option had reached maturity last year. And had she have done that, by the way, had it have matured, her exercise of that put option would have driven this business into administration. Which is essentially what happened.
0: Like, it was going to mature. There was obviously other issues, but they couldn't afford the 60, amongst other things. And they've actually said, threw their hands up. But as a result, I think I think where this deal is so good is that clearly there were no other people willing able to run this business, which is a that great uh, scenario when you're a founder and you sell It's the Kerry Packer situation. So- Clearly, the receivers of GoTo or the or the administrators, whoever they were, ran a process, and they did the same. There was a business called Flora and Fauna. Uh, I don't do you know that business by Julie Mathers. So Julie's a lovely, lovely person, a really good business person. Has a few businesses, and she did. She sold her business about thirty million bucks to BWX, and again, also bought it back for a song. Uh, I don't know what she paid, but it would have been in the low digit millions, I suspect. So, two fantastic female entrepreneurs have played these. And there, I think it was all blokes at BW. All old white
1: blokes. Well, they had massive turnover of their management and board. Massive constant turnover.
0: One of the ironic thing is one of the, the guy, the CEO who found. It, I actually went. I did that. You know the EY Entrepreneur of the Year thing. I did it yeah. back in 2016 or something like that. And one of the people who was against me was this John Humble guy, who was the founder of BWX, who obviously listed it. It was worth all this money. Went to crap. Uh, business now worth obviously less than 0. Here's one of the people trying to buy some of their assets, the guy who stuffed up in the first place, which is which is interesting. But I think the beauty of what Zoe did is there was no other potential buyer. She was able to buy a business that's worth ostensibly 20 or 30 million bucks uh, and she's got 90 million bucks out of it less than a bit of tax. So it's a masterful transaction.
1: This is what I mean this is the timeline of this situation. Her business, she's got this nice business, it booms, BWX is there. Wanting to diversify because they predominantly sell supermarket brands. Like, Suken is a big brand, but it's a supermarket brand and the margins suck selling through supermarkets. And they look at this direct to consumer, which, by the way, GoTo is not purely direct to consumer. They sell a ton through Mecca. So, um, and so, but they have this direct to consumer bit of it. Great margins, great brand. They're like, let's diversify into this. But the world is going crazy. Everyone's got tons of money. BWX is worth a fortune. So they say we're going to pay a big amount of money.
0: Yeah, so one thing I'll pick you up on idea is BWX hit their peak share price. Back in 2018, it was it sort of went up to up to about seven bucks a share. Uh so it was worth so I think it, it debuted at like two bucks a share. It went to seven bucks a share in 2018. Uh during two thousand sort of covid period it was around 4 bucks 55 so it was it had recovered a bit but it was it was well off its
1: peak what's that market cap 6 700 mil or something wasn't it uh, At its peak it would have been no the 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 valuation when they bought zoe's business the valuation oh, of bwx about 500 probably 4 500 okay so compared to the 89 that they paid in cash they had yeah. no problem raising the money to buy her business and if that's how the story ended if the story ended and it said BWX significantly overpaid for a business Yeah, jury, but raised the cash to do it when they had a much higher share price, Yeah, that would be the end of the story. And arguably, BWX may not be an administration now, although the $109 million they owe to ComBank, but, yeah. but that is not how the story ended. The story ended with, we're just going to buy 50.1% of you mm. for $89 million. But if that's how the story ended they would have still been fine as well. Yeah. That's not how the story ended. Uh, the story ended uh, by saying, uh, and we make a promise that you can dump the other 49.9% yeah. of us on us in the future. But if that was how it ended, that would have been fine as well because it would have been an earnout based on an earnings multiple or something yeah. like that, and if the business went down, they wouldn't have to pay much. But that's yeah. not how it ended. <laughs> they promised $59.2 million come rain, hail, or snow. Mm. Yeah. not that she could and that that is what killed them and to me that was always the insanity of this deal yeah was to make their they basically could never imagine a scenario where a business worth 500 million dollars mm. that had just bought this go-to business and had Suken and and some other brands yeah. they could never imagine that a 59 million dollar contingent payment would push them across the line and send them broke. Can I ask you another question?
0: Uh, I, I presume these BWX guys. Well, they're obviously very stupid, but they can't be completely stupid.
1: In that, I don't think people are stupid. I think no, people I think a lot make of people mistakes are and they make poor decisions. No, I think this is.
0: But, but All right. Like, <laughs> no, we usually but, differ. On I'll, these I'll, take your, I'll take your. I'll take your. I will take your view. Let's say they're not. They're not completely stupid here. They must have had some sort of in their head synergistic benefit to buying this business. It was a. If you look at a lot of business, a lot of these sort of core Brand and business do a very good job buying, like Coca Cola or some of these these great businesses do a great job buying other brands. Uh, Pepsi has bought a bunch of businesses over the years that synergy. They, so look at Coke or Pepsi for example, and they've got great distribution. So if you're if you're a Coke and you have all your Coke bridges in a thousand different places, and you've got great market power over over the retailers, and then you say you go and buy Mount Franklin water for example, which I think they did. I maybe mean, they made it they bought it. Let's say they bought Mount Franklin Water and you just pop in Mount Franklin Water in a great distribution system and it's a good deal. Uh, was there some sort of benefit there that, that, that BLBX are trying to glean from buying GoTo that they could plug into that distribution? Was there, was there something I'm oh, missing here that maybe they weren't as stupid as they appear?
1: Well, it seemed to me pretty clear that what they thought they could do was create this house of brands cosmetics business pushing away from the supermarket stuff that they presumably didn't like very much because of the margins, and into direct-to-consumer, more differentiated brands, and that was Flora and Fauna, which was, I think, a crazier overpayment.
0: I understand that, yeah, direct, you've got a higher margin, but what's the point? Big deal. Lots of business have higher margin. It doesn't mean you you change your
1: business. No. Yeah, I don't think there were real synergies.
0: And then to me it's and synergies obviously is the word people use to describe a bad transaction, but there should be some sort of even some there's some sort of benefit to buying a business that you can have that the the, the current vendor in this case Zoe doesn't have. Otherwise, why why do the transaction? Unless the cheaper cost of capital potentially.
1: Yeah, well the biggest ones in these kind of deals will be things like manufacturing synergies. Yeah. But I don't think they ever planned to bring together the manufacturing in one place, or there's distribution synergies. So we've got all these real, but yeah. they didn't want that because they didn't want to dump GoTo into supermarkets. Mm. So that that was not what they And they were not trying to put Sukin on the GoTo website or the Flora yeah. and Fauna website. Yeah. yeah I, so, uh, you know, and so what are you going to say? Well, there's some finance synergies and yes. so a few marketing yeah. synergies, but come on. So, yeah, I, listen, I, I'm sold. Like, I, I never thought this was a good idea. Yeah. The crazy thing is that not only. Because I think they're—I mean—I think there's strong arguments for house of brands type business, and there are genuine synergies. And obviously, LVMH, the luxury brand, is a good, actually, I should say, a, a very um, good smart friend of mine put me onto the Acquired podcast. I don't know if you've ever come across that, but that is an unbelievable podcast, that breaking down in three-hour detail different businesses and exploring what those businesses are all about. And the one on LVMH is unbelievable. So LVMH is probably the best example of, you know, there's 75 brands rolled up and they get a lot of synergy benefits, right? But I don't think there were synergies here. But I also have to say this. Not only did they pay, BWX pay for this business at the top of the market, but um the amount they paid, if you include the full value of the company, like the valuation of the business, which is obviously the original eighty nine plus the fifty nine, it's like fourteen times earnings, EBIT, at the top of the market. Like, it's a crazy prices. I think it, fourteen
0: times EBIT probably itself. Yeah, it's expensive. But if you were paying fourteen times EBIT, that's probably they were probably trading on a high multiple, and that's probably not catastrophic. It's not like paying like a thousand times EBIT. No, so I can actually justify the fortune. I think it goes to an extent though, what clearly happened there is that the earnings must have dropped. That's that, that the only thing I can think of is the earnings dropped significantly. So that it wasn't so the real EBIT multiple was more like 30 or 40. I don't
1: even probably. agree with 14 times. Like like I think um paying ten times is okay. At the moment, you know, a business like this if it was profitable in private hands. Cause I think the revenue at peak was like thirty five to forty mil was my recollection of it. And so I think a business like this now it's like quite low basket size, relying on repeat purchasing, not incredible margins, this is like a five times multiple, probably at the moment, in as a private business.
0: I think, you, you, I think that comment is wrong in isolation. The multi-payout business is based on the growth and return of equity. If you can, if you're a business with high margins that's growing quickly, if, you're, if this business is growing 100 a year with strong margins, you could reinvest that money back in the business. Then 14 times is an incredible price. I think in isolation, that doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, but we're not talking about Hypothetical. This business doesn't have incredible margins. So what was it growing? What was its growth
0: rate pre-purchase? That's that's the question. At
1: this point in time, yes, it would have had a, it's had an enormous growth rate. I probably had done a multiple of EBIT year on year, not a, not like not more than hundred percent.
0: If this is growing hundred percent, you're paying for the next year seven times. So that's that's that's. I've got no issue with that itself. Well, obviously what's happened is the, the earnings dropped. So I don't think you can say the purchase was ec- expensive based on performance. But your, your issue is? This is yummy mummy. Remember we talked about the yummy mummy thing when, like a, a couple of months ago and the business deteriorated. This is obviously not as bad, but-
1: No, no, this is a much better business, but I tell you why I disagree with what you're saying. Let's even not even argue about the 14 times earnings, which I think is eye watering, but what I, I, I know what your point is. You know, the common theory simplistic theory with ASX listed companies is you can pay an earnings multiple that matches the percentage growth rate once a company's hit maturity a 20% growth you pay 20 times a 30% of your growth you pay 30, as a long term you know 5 year growth but the issue here was if they would have just gone and bought this business for 150 million dollars cash or some equity in uh, in BWX some combo which is what Maggie Beer did when they bought the Hamper Emporium business, right? That would mean that if the business plummeted, every all shareholders would wear it together, including the, the vendors, if they took stock. But that's not what they did. They basically exposed themselves to catastrophe in the event of falling earnings yeah. for a business that had, had one year of a spike in earnings. Like, I just think it was the not a smart M&A deal no, but at we're, all, we're, pretty we're, dumb. Um, we're
0: agreeing on that. What we're disagreeing is- clearly the structure was moronic. They should have paid using script or had adjustments or whatever. What wasn't moronic was paying 14 times for businesses growing really nicely. I think that, that's completely defendable. Like you can pay 50 times and it'd be a great purchase and you can pay 10 times and be a terrible purchase. So I'm not sure. This
1: is the manga argument again. This is why I argued about two – I can't do it. If a business is growing 50% per <laughs> annum and it's grown 50% around for the last two years and they say it's going to be for the next three years and they say consequently you need to pay – 30 times earnings for this business then i say i don't think i can emotionally bring myself to do that because the margin of safety is tiny is ne- negligible and it means it's priced to perfection I have to be perfectly right in the call that I'm making. And unfortunately, I was not bestowed with um, perfection as a, in my personality. And so I make mistakes. To paraphrase the great, late, great
0: Charlie Mung, I don't think a multiple itself, you know, isolation is relevant. I think you've got to look at the growth rate and the quality of earnings and the quality yes, of I'm growth.
1: Yes, like, I'm agreeing. If you
0: pay... You can pay five times earnings and overpay massively if the business goes backwards. I'm agreeing with you, but I'm giving
1: you your situation where you would pay a high multiple and you would probably be right. I'm going to give you this situation, okay? Very high revenue growth over the past and projected into the future. Uh, Very good gross margins, very good earnings margins, okay? Uh, Defensible product, a good brand, okay? Well, the growth rate is 50% per annum, and we think it's going to be maintained. Okay, I'll accept that. Now we want you to pay 30 times earnings for it. I'm telling you, even in the world where all of that exists, me, my personality, I don't think I can pay 30 times earnings because I think what's running through my head if I was doing due diligence in this business is all the things that can go wrong. And I can think of tons of things that can go wrong, and probably one of them is going to go wrong, And then I'm going to be left with this business that I paid 30 times earnings for. Oh, that was unlucky that that happened. We never foresaw that there would be this competitor that would come in to cut prices against us, whatever it is. And so smarter people than me and more self-confident people than me will pay 30 times for that business. And then what will happen is that survivorship bias will focus on the ones that made the right call and they will be heroes. And I think that there will be a litany of ones by The wayside that made the wrong call on that, and I just feel confident that I'll be one of the people that made the wrong call. And so, I'll rather go and find a business that is not um, as enthusiastic about its prospects, or maybe that there's something else about it, and I'll say, Let me pay a lower multiple, and that is probably why I'm not in VC because VCs have to be true believers yep. on what the potential well, is more extreme.
0: Yeah. But forget and forget basically if you look at just sort of normal call it share market or private equity investors. I think you both be right. I think your method of investing is, is a completely justifiable. No problem with doing that. I just don't think so it's the what called the Warren Buffett cigar butt style in many ways. Maybe well, it's not more quite extreme that extreme, me, right? but it's, it's towards yeah, that. yeah yeah. But you're, you're towards that spectrum versus the buy Netflix in 2010. It was always overpriced, Netflix, but still 20X because it was a great business. It had great market power. It comes down to how strong do you believe the mo- the competitive mo- – we talk talking about – always talk about competitive advantage. How strong is competitive advantage in this? In this case, Zoe's business had no real competitive – great competitive advantage. Hence, its earnings dropped really quickly. Hence, it was great, grossly – grossly overpaid. So, I think you can't you – can't, Compare that to a genuinely Coca Cola, a genuinely strong franchise, which justifies a higher multiple. Because there's, but often what happens is markets become irrational and people pay too high a multiple, which is wrong as well. Which I think is what you're sort of talking about. So there is a sweet spot where you can buy a good business for a fair price, and it's still Charlie Munger style, and it's still a very good way to invest. But it's very easy to be sucked in and pay too much, which is So I think you've got to look at macro in many senses here. So if you had the macro the macro lens in 2021, I I certainly thought the market was over. I wasn't buying anything back then. and and if If you had the macro lens right, that would have overcome the micro issues you're talking
1: about. Well, there's this book by a guy called Hamilton Helmer called Seven Powers, which is about the seven things that differentiate great businesses. I just bought it. It hasn't even arrived yet. I heard the guys from the Acquired podcast talking about it. So that's what I do. Whenever I hear people that I think are smart or interesting talking about a book that's influenced them, I just go and buy the book and read it. So hopefully this will be good. But I'll report back to you about, you know, what are this guy's seven powers that he says makes businesses differentiate. Interesting you mentioned Netflix. I think the foreword of this book is written by Reed Hastings. So like it's a very credible and it'll be interesting to read, but I'm not saying that um, you're wrong in advocating for paying much higher multiples for much better businesses. I think my two issues are one is I just don't have the self-confidence to do it. I always want a margin of safety because I know how hard it is to run businesses and how things that are going really well that you think will be great. They just they just go wrong sometimes. But the second reason is more of a personal reason, I think, because the businesses I prefer to get involved in are businesses where I'm active and I buy a large piece of them and they're great products going okay to well but i think i can supercharge their growth and so maybe what i think is i don't want to pay a high price for somebody else doing something that i think that i can do if i get involved in a business so that might just be a personal issue you know so much the private equity sort of way to do it yeah i think so i'm like private private equity
0: on that note incredible effort by zoe foster blake well done we'll move on to our next story after a quick break on the slump in luxury watch prices Uh, you, I imagine you're a big-time property investor?
1: I'm the opposite to a big-time property investor. I know how to grow businesses. I'm, I'm good with startups. I'm good with growth businesses. I can buy listed equities. I can invest in funds. But um, I'm definitely not very sophisticated when it comes to property investment. I regret to inform you.
0: I hear you. There's only so many things you can be expert in. And most people who invest in property are really flying blind. That's where Performance Property comes into it. They're a high-end property advisory firm who work with some of Australia's smartest investors. Performance Property will help you strategically grow your portfolio, utilise data sets, and make sure you're not overpaying. They even conduct detailed due diligence and even help with existing assets. They essentially make buying property as easy as buying a BHP share. If you've got more than $500,000 in equity to invest and are looking to build a multi-million dollar portfolio, give Performance Property a call. 03 8539 or visit their website at performanceproperty.com.au. And for our second story, we have the slump in the price of luxury watches, with Rolex and Patek Philippe watches sliding to two year lows in October as demand in the secondary market declined. The Bloomberg Subdial Index, which apparently is a thing, and looks at the pricing for the 50 most traded watches by value, fell another 1.8% recently, to its lowest level since the pandemic. Since last April, Rolex and Patek prices have fallen by 27 and 47% respectively. Meanwhile, the share price of LVMH, the bellwether of luxury Scott, the bellwether of luxury stocks, which is owned by Bernard and Arnaud. And who was briefly the world's richest person has dropped more than 20% since July, wiping 100 billion euros off its market cap. But don't feel too sorry for Bernard. He's still worth US 179 billion, up from 3.5 billion in 1997. A dear, I'm assuming you're a Patek Philippe man. Did you see the luxury watch market slumping like it has?
1: So I'm a nothing watchman. I don't own a watch at all. In fact, I, that's not exactly true. My my late grandfather, um, left me like this watch, which I don't think is valuable, but it has a lot of sentimental value to me, and I love it. But I don't even wear it. So not only am I not a watch man, and not only do I not own a watch, including an Apple Watch, I own no watch. But um, and not only do I not. I'm not in love with luxury goods, but actually I don't like luxury goods at all. I think material goods and and an attachment to material goods is more of a recipe for sadness than happiness, which is a bit of a philosophical view. And so my comments on this are going to be much broader, but you should teach me about these watches and what I should understand about the world from this slump in watches. I do know a lot about LVMH, which I just mentioned because I listened to, to some podcasts about it, And I love LVMH as a business. And Bernard, I know, is quite an incredible operator. But um, what do you make of this slumping watches? Because it's interesting. You just said that England, when you were in London, everything was busy. And so you said that makes you feel like the economy is not in the doldrums. But on the flip side, LVMH is tanked 20% and watch prices are down. So what do you make of all of this?
0: Yeah, obviously, you won't be surprised to know that like yourself, I – dislike material things i dislike expensive material things even more um, i hate having stuff around uh, i do have an iwatch watch i should say because i use it to run with and you can listen to podcasts while you run so it's, it's a pretty good system but yeah i hate I, I cannot understand why people buy expensive watches it's a other than to show how rich you are i, I find it genuinely repulsive uh it's such just an incredible waste and, and people will probably think i'm i'm crazy saying this but Lots I, of I hate people the,
1: love them I mean, Christine Holgate, by the way, I'll be open to her buying me a Cartier watch. I don't want to dissuade her if she's listening. But, but, you know, we've got the greatest listenership. I'm actually saying this seriously. When I look through who's on our LinkedIn page, it is the the most incredible group of who's who power people. I would say of any podcast. Anyway, so Christine, please buy me a watch and I'm happy to take it. And But, you know, a lot of people are not buying it for show. Or maybe I'll say some people are not buying it to be showy or to signal, although signaling is an evolutionary thing for humans, right? But some people genuinely love watches, love them. So it's not just for
0: show. Why, I, I, this is obviously something I can't understand. I, other than the signaling your status, which is essentially to get a – different mate or whatever, uh, I can't see any – like a Swatch and a Rolex essentially provide the same function of telling the time. The only difference is one tells people you're rich and one tells people you're not. I I can't see any other difference.
1: Well, firstly, you know, you say Swatch – and I know what you're talking about, but Swatch Group is the biggest watch group in the world, and they own half of the brands that you would say are luxury brands. As it second happens. biggest. Apple's Apple's the biggest. Apple, uh, maybe or maybe not after this Apple's week. Apple's the biggest watch producer. Maybe by not after way. this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe um, not.
0: So, and this is just to clarify. Apple has been banned from selling i watches uh, in the US, I think, due to a, some sort of dispute. So just Apple watches. Are they called? Aware of that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, because yeah, of a yeah. World Trade Organization ruling against them and in favour of another American company. So we'll see what happens with that. A whole separate. It's a whole separate discussion, which is interesting. So uh, what I think about watches is, and in defence of people that love them, one there is a very there is mechanical beauty in in clockwork, as I'll describe it. Like there is something very mechanically beautiful about the precision and the way in which watches are built. It's not a, a a really high quality watch and its clockwork is a, a, is beautiful. It's very precise from an engineering point of view. So some people do love that. The second thing is it's a piece of jewellery. And so I think if you're going on a a rampage against why people love jewellery, then I don't think that that's going to be a winning crusade for you because there are many, many, many people that buy jewellery purely to signal wealth and style but there are many people who genuinely love jewelry and i think watches are the most accessible male type of jewelry and lots of women buy men's expensive men's watches as well
0: no i agree i think the jewelry comparison is a good one and i don't i don't like expensive jewelry either i don't think there's any great utility in buying expensive diamonds either and, and let's go to your point on lvmh so are you right well that's a whole different ball game uh, uh have you ever read the? I think it's the. Have you read the twelve million dollar stuff shark, uh, which is a, I think it was twelve. Million, Damien Hurst. So I'm a shareholder in Blue Thumb, which is Australia's largest art seller, actually online art, well, largest art seller in general, and it's in terms of volume, not not value, but in terms of volume, it's easily the largest. And I read the twelve million dollar stuff shark, which I can't remember who wrote it, but it basically talks about how art gets its value. It's a really interesting read. How why is one? Why is Damien Hurst stuff shark, which is a, like a, he basically created this shark that degraded over the years and was worth millions of dollars why is that why is that valuable and they talk about the whole art ecosystem from uh, obviously you got gallerists to experts, there's not to museums It's a whole way art gets its value i don't necessarily agree with it but it is what it is but art's at least a pursuit of call it individual brilliance versus mass. and there's one of each so you have one one there's only one mona lisa whether it's worth what it's worth or whatever is the second point versus you're mass producing a watch or mass producing jewelry is quite different to art but i don't like i don't like any of that i mean, we've got a society that's so polarized when the rich getting so much richer as they have in the last 30 or 40 years due to we've talked about this over recent weeks how interest rate and tax settings have allowed the rich to get incredibly rich and the spillover into all these luxury asset classes. So you're asking LVMH as kind of the, the great reflection of that. LVMH is an absolutely brilliant business. But one thing, the, the reason why I was so pessimistic about markets a year ago, when Bernardo, Bernardo No wasn't the richest man on earth, when you've got the richest man on earth running a brand, essentially – buys, creates things for a hundred bucks and sells it for 10,000 due to the power of the brand he has created. And he's, he's the best ever at doing this, but he creates value for where the, the value is really high and the utility is really low. And that's essentially what luxury brands do. And Hermes is another great example. Uh, and these brands create value out of thin air where there's too much money. So you can't have Bernard, Bernard know, is not the richest person in the world in a fair and rational economy, global economy. But he's the richest man in the world in a highly unfair and unjust economy, and that's what exactly what we had a year ago.
1: Oh, I think you're confounding lots of different arguments. Like, so do I think there should be people in this world with 170 billion dollars? I don't. I mean, I'm in your camp on that. Okay, I don't. I don't think it's good for humanity. That actually
0: wasn't what I said. It wasn't. That
1: actually wasn't what I said. All right. Well, that's what I think. Do you think that or not?
0: <laughs> I said he shouldn't have. I don't mind if a person who manufactures. Uh, A cancer, something that cures cancer, makes one hundred seventy billion dollars. That's not that Somebody selling expensive watches is worth one hundred seventy billion dollars.
1: So I think. uh, I'm trying to find something. I'm trying to figure out what I agree with and disagree with. Okay, number one, I think luxury goods are commercialized art. That's how I view them. Now you can say, I think a handbag that's. Mass-produced. I'm not sure I'd call it mass-produced, but let's call it mass. A handbag that's mass-produced is not art, fine. But I actually think it's probably more similar to art than regular handbags that you buy in Kmart. And so I think people are buying it for. They may not be buying it for the same reason as they buy a piece of art, but there'll be some overlap between those things. Some of it's signalling how wealthy they are. Some of them they just love the how it makes them feel to own it, or be around it or whatever it is. And so I'm non-judgmental about that. Like I think it's a a waste of money, does nothing for me. I think that buying material goods, especially collecting them, is a road to unhappiness. That's my personal philosophical view. Many people will disagree with that. But if we accept that um, it's a free market economy and we're not selling, you know, Someone like Bernard, I know he's not going around and saying, I'll buy your kidneys. Like He's just selling stuff that people want to buy. The fact that he's the richest person in the world, or was, I think he was a couple of times, or the fact that he's got $100, $200 billion, I don't really care. He's not hes not doing anything malicious to the world. Personally, I think it's better than a whole lot of other industries that make tons of money. It's largely harmless, I think. Can I, so uh, can I just not, jump in
0: and compare? So yeah. You know, he repla- the man he replaces, the richest man in the world, was – Jeff Bezos, and the man Jeff replaced yeah. was Elon Musk. So and there's plenty to criticize both Bezos and Musk about. But if you look inherently, Musk has made money through tele, t- um, t- taking things to space a lot more cheaply, so reducing the cost of satellites and everything with SpaceX, and being the clear leader in electric cars. So reducing uh, g- carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially two primary yes, – 10, 10. 10 out, out of 10. of things he wrong, two very good things. Sold. And if you look at Bezos, he essentially got rich – Making stuff cheaper and quicker to get to people, so you can get and there's arguments on consumption or destroying kind of small but
1: retailers. Yeah, it's have got there's rich clearly hundred
0: percent. But, 100%. but if, if you look at the essentially the utility Amazon creates, is it it makes goods and services, goods slightly cheaper and services through AWS cheaper. So the AWS is where most of the value in Amazon is, is and it's cheaper for startups to start up a business because AWS made compute a lot less expensive. So I'd say. Tick, tick, Do you think Amazon's
1: core retail business is a force for good in the world or not? Probably neutral, the AWS.
0: neutral at best, but AWS is a force for good, clearly.
1: I agree. But I think Amazon's retail business today is not a force for good. I think too much. So I don't want him to be the richest person in the world. I think what he's done to small retail is horrible.
0: Yeah, but if you, but if you look at from, from a consumer perspective, it's gotten stuff quicker and cheaper to consumers. There's problems with that as well, but it's a it's a net neutral to slight positive. Terrible
1: for the environment. Terrible for consumption, waste.
0: But if you look at LVMH, what it does is make stuff and sell it for a really expensive price so people can okay. show how rich they are. Uh, whereas that money could otherwise be used for other more productive, not not necessarily giving a charity, but that, that money could be invested in more productive things. So I don't want to see a world where the richest person in it is someone who creates luxury goods. I want to see the world where the richest person in it creates ideally a social utility that's positive. And I don't think – and okay, LVMH – I an- know he's an absolute genius. He's probably the best acquirer of any business anywhere, probably even better than Buffett and Munger. He's unbelievable at buying businesses. He's unbelievable at building brands. He's a complete genius, but I think he hasn't created any positive in the world by having Louis Vuitton handbags and Moet, whatever they sell, Cognac or whatever they sell, all this stuff is just champagne. selling stuff, expensive stuff to people. Um, right. well, Moet, Champagne, but Hennessy's, whatever Hennessy is. like uh, Cognac, yeah yeah cognac so I, I don't see any social good they you own know, some hotels and stuff or whatever which we probably work with but i'm i'm not sure what social overall good lvmh's cause Obviously, they pay tax and all that kind of stuff which is which is a positive but
1: drive they drive the uh, they drive the capitalist economy which is you know what keeps us in wealthy comfortable lifestyles as a society but i think this is this is the failing of
0: capitalism this is where capitalism falls down because some people have so much money they can afford to spend $10,000 on an Hermes, I know he's not Hermes, it's a different brand, but I can spend $10,000 on a Birkin handbag from Hermes because I've so much him. money that I can spend it.
1: Yeah, so, I, so Hermes hates him, I think.
0: They're yeah, like, clearly, they, but it's yeah. the same sort of thing, Hermes, but, um, LVMH, let me, wh- hang on, whatever. Hang on,
1: hang on. So firstly, wh- like this is what you're basically saying. You're judging who should be making money based on the utility of what they bring to the world. So- you know, I don't know if you've got many friends who are in, in um, investment banking or or funds management or trading, but like they're not going to like this particular part of the segment because you're sitting there in judgment of the utility and therefore who should be rich. So teachers should probably earn five million dollars a year, right? But it's not the way the world, the economy works. But before you respond to that, I also think you know, I think you might be a bit wrong about who's buying these luxury goods. I don't think the rich people are buying luxury goods. I think people who can't afford luxury goods are buying luxury goods to try and live a bit of the rich personal lifestyle, and they're in debt buying the Louis Vuitton handbag. I think that is what's—that's a different problem.
0: Yeah, I that's wor- I can't just go back to your first point. I, I've got nothing against, but I don't know, or anybody who, who creates luxury. I, good on them. Um, like he's a fantastic business person. What I don't like is what it indicates that where the economy has got to where the richest person in the world the number one richest is worth hundreds of billions of dollars has done it through people having too much money that that's my issue i, I don't if it, good on him for doing it like it i'm not critical of him at all i'm critical of the society we live in and that's what's happened so, so i think just to draw a pretty important distinction
1: do you know which market globally is the most significant for LVMH china i'm assuming yes exactly and so Like, he was already doing pretty fantastically before the whole, like, wealth increase in China, rise of the middle class, but that it was really the supercharging of a lot of these luxury brands. And so, on the one hand, so I understand your argument. Your argument is, I can't believe we live in a world where we now have so much food, so much shelter, so many of the essentials that we can go and splurge, a certain segment of society can splurge all of this money on pure luxury with minimal utility. And so, what I'm adding to this narrative is to say, I'm not sure that's what's happening. I think that what's happening is, and I bl- like, we can sheet this home to social media, which I like to blame for lots of things because I think they've got a lot to answer for. So, the, so the Instagram slash TikTok generation. Uh, I think is driving a lot of people who don't have the money to buy these luxury brands to go and purchase them on credit, go into debt to show that they're living the rich person lifestyle as well. So I think that is what has really driven the rise of the mass market of these luxury brands. And the second thing that's driven it is Chinese the chi- Chinese society going from being poor, almost universally, to moving into the middle class. That's what's driven a lot of it as well because Louis Vuitton handbags – Hermes, different story. Hermes, different story. But Louis Vuitton handbags are not driven – are not um, the sales of those – and it's not driven by the 1%. That's not who's driving these sales. Oh, I it's think not. it
0: is the 1%. I think Louis Vuitton – t- Louis Vuitton handbags are well in the thousands, I would have assumed. Okay.
1: So what? So you can go and get a credit card. You know what? Go around and ask some people about who is buying Louis Vuitton handbags and you will see it is there are lots of people who are not high-income earners and we could say the same thing about luxury European cars. I don't know if you've noticed how many Porsche Cayennes are on the road. Mm. There are not a, an awful lot of high-income earners driving them. I mean, some do, but people are buying all of these luxury goods because, you know, Porsche Cayenne is also a luxury good. The utility of the Porsche Absolutely. Cayenne is no better yeah. than a car that's half the nah, price. No, for sure. And so this is being driven by credit, by people, you know, the social media has supercharged the keeping up with the Joneses and that is who is buying these luxury goods. And lots of the rise of luxury goods has been the, the attainability of those luxury goods with credit and the rise of China.
0: I couldn't agree, the credit point, I think we're in 100% agreement and that, that essentially is the problem. So we live in a society that has made debt easier to get and we now live in a world where houses cost 10 times the average income in Australia, not three or four times. So we live in a world where people are hocked up to their eyeballs in debt and they're buying, I'm not talking about a, a Tim Gurner avocado situation, which i, I disagree with the avocado point. i think people should be eating avocado even it costs a little bit more what i'm talking about is 10 15 20 dollars things that don't serve any genuine utility other than to show that you're rich that, that that and and to use debt to achieve that which is even worse can i just make make a quick
1: point but what's though? wrong with that like I, I agree with you like it it's not i would say if somebody came to me you know i mentor lots of i call them kids they're in their 20s let's say and they said i've got this idea i want to um do a fake it till you make it and go and buy a Porsche Cayenne or a $50,000 Rolex and I'm going to put it on credit and I'm just going to like pay it back. My advice would be there better be a good – because, you know, fake it till you make it can be all right, but there better be a good reason that doesn't mean fake it till you make it because I want to post on like TikTok or Insta and look like I've made it. I'd advise them against it. It's a terrible idea. But I don't have uh, like ethical issues with it. Do you have ethical issues with that?
0: Well, not the – people can make stu- – I don't have an ethical issue with somebody making a stupid decision. That's the, like people can make – to put on helmets, can make whatever stupid decision they want. Like that's – so uh, the the idiot who's going to you and saying, I want to buy a Porsche with debt, that, that's – they're welcome to do that. I don't have an ethical issue. I, I think that's it's really stupid and I don't think you should buy buying any – I don't think you should buy much stuff at all with debt, but you certainly shouldn't be buying anything luxury with debt. If you need a if you need a car to take your kid to school and you need a borrower to get the car, then if you're buying a Toyota Corolla, then fine, absolutely. Um, but to get into going to debt to buy anything that's not a necessity, I, I don't like.
1: Uh, or we could add going into debt to buy depreciating assets is
0: probably not a good idea if you well. can avoid it. Uh, can I just make a quick point? Because yeah, smart listeners will know, I, I've had, a, obviously, Adam going off against luxury items. I, I own a business, or well, part own a business called Luxury Escapes. So, um, you say, well, Adam, you're, you're, you're full of shit. You're talking, how, how dare can people buy luxury stuff and you sell luxury hotels, which would be a reasonable point to make. But I'll, I'll, there's two points I make, and we actually had an ABC, I didn't do it, but an ABC journalist um, asked this question off one of my colleagues. And the, 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 I guess the quick answer, I'd, I'd say in reply to that, I'm, I'm sort of creating a potential straw man here but the answer i'd say you're
1: doing look you're having both sides of this conversation which is fine like i'm happy to just be a spectator <laughs> i pretty it's a pretty relaxed role for me it's in fact my preferred role stop <laughs> well
0: i think the difference between say, luxury escapes which is we sell experiences and at lvmh which sells largely goods is a we sell a big range so we'll sell stuff that costs 100 bucks a night and we'll sell stuff that costs ten thousand dollars a night and you say well adam how can you sell something that costs ten thousand dollars a night when you're talking about don't buy something that costs ten thousand dollars and this is is something that evaporates in a day. And I say, well, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I don't love people spending that, but that's a very, very small percentage of our sales. In fact, like sub 0.1% probably is at that level. The vast majority of what we sell is to call it middle or slightly above upper middle Australia. And they're saving money because what we do is we sell stuff for significantly less than everyone else. So we allow people to get a lot more utility for what is a can be a luxury or can be a non luxury. Uh, stay, uh, so there is. A, I think there is a difference in what we do to versus what what LVMH does. Right, but
1: let, so, if I'm allowed to once again participate in this discussion, LVMH. my question to you would be: um, Why do you think people are buying ten thousand dollars a night holidays? Because I don't. So, what's going on there? I think it's a case of people have a lot of money; and they can afford to spend it. I think it's very rare that
0: somebody would use debt to fund a holiday at that level versus what you're talking about, people buying uh, Birkin bags or whatever using debt, which I think does happen a lot more. So I'm I'm just not sure the extent of people going on.
1: I'm not sure what would get me across the line to spend $10,000 a night. If you said to me $10,000 a night is this incredible experience that is unique, let's say you get to have the five most interesting people you'd ever want to have dinner with, and that's $10,000. I understand that. Yeah. But let's say, I think the most I've ever spent on a night at a hotel might be $1,500, which is an exorbitant amount of money, right? But like, but not, it's a long way from 10. It's 15% of $10,000 a night. And so tell me, not um, not that they're rich. I know they're rich. But why are they buying a $10,000 a night vacation and not a $2,000 a night vacation? What's going on there? Oh, I think that the, the, the amount of people that buy 10000 is
0: is probably one in it. Hundred thousand, it's it's very very low. Like it's the amount of people that spend two hundred grand on a trip. Which what
1: about is, five thousand dollars? Five thousand.
0: Even that's pretty. I, th- I think generally the upper level people pay. So we sell a lot of Maldives mm-hmm. properties. So Maldives is a beautiful destination. It tends to be you're usually up for around a thousand dollars a night for Maldives mm-hmm. and up to about three to four thousand dollars a night, which at the, at the pretty getting the pretty high end there. And but if you're spending court. a night, which is a a very nice Maldives sort of place, which we sell a bit of, you're getting incredible food. You're getting sort of of chef's hat, Michelin star level food. You're getting incredible diving. Mm. Uh, You're saying an overwater villa versus a hotel room. So you're getting definite value there.
1: And how long is the average – how long average? How many nights on average would you sell at $2,000 a night? Probably six. Six, okay. So people are paying $12,000 plus flights – they fly economy or yeah. business in general. What's your experience? A uh, lot fly economy. A lot fly lot, economy. A
0: majority of vast so majority fly, of fly
1: economy. An economy flight because they don't. How long is the flight to the Maldives from the east coast of Australia?
0: Uh, you stop. You got to stop by Singapore, Sri Lanka, or Dubai. So it lasts at fifteen hours.
1: So they so they think the price differential because I think this is a very this is you're giving us a, an, quite an incredible insight into something now. So people will say for a fifteen hour flight. The price differential to have a bed and more space and better service is not worth it. But going and paying $12,000 for six nights versus paying $4,000 for six nights, because that's still a lot of – I don't know if you've noticed this, but $2,000 is a ton of money to pay per night. It's a lot of money. I'm actually like, I'm
0: probably I'm actually probably over like – the average we'd probably sell for is more
1: like $1,500 a night, which
0: is still expensive by all means. But
1: yeah, okay, so $9,000 for six nights. Yep. So let's call yep. it 10000 Yeah, You can have a nice holiday. If you spend 750 a night, that is a nice, nice, nice holiday. That's a sweet in most places, okay? And so what people are feeling is that the differential in price is worth it for the differential in experience.
0: But remember, if you're comparing – are you comparing to like the Gold Coast, for example? I love the Gold Coast, but – Oh, Noosa, whatever. I say Noosa when you're paying sort of a thousand bucks a night there, probably, and you're getting a lovely stay, but you're sort of staying in a hotel or whatever,
1: and you walk down to the beach. But versus- I can go to a resort in Asia that's not the Maldives, yeah, yeah. and I should sure, pay seven hundred and fifty dollars a night and get a beautiful, like a five star hotel, beautiful experience. I'm not talking Fiji, better than Fiji, but you're buying a
0: hotel that. in a not in your own villa over water, which is very different. And remember, right. to build a Maldives property, you've got to get all the stuff in. This is a much higher capital cost. You've got to build this thing in the middle, oh, in the middle of nowhere. So, there's, there's higher capital costs.
1: So, this, this is world. not luxury, Adam. What you're describing – I know you're called luxury escapes, but I think luxury travel is a bit different to luxury goods. You're, I'm in agreement with you. I'm, I've spent a long time trying not to agree with you about this, and I think I've found many things to disagree on. But on this, I agree. Like, because what you're describing is that the journey from $750 a night to $1,500 a night – is buying you substantial additional utility.
0: Absolutely. And travel is a very efficient market, which is, I think is my issue with travel versus stuff. I think travel is an efficient market. There's so many substitutes. and you make the good point you can go and stay in Bali or to Bali. Bali's got some incredible hotels. You can stay in Kampinski in Bali, which has amazing food, amazing everything for call it a luxury escape. So you're up for like three grand for six nights or whatever it is. I'm, I'm just making up a number. Um, and that'd be an unbelievable stay. And that's fantastic value. It's still not super, super cheap, but it's great value. Or you can go to Maldives and pay kind of double or triple that. But I think the value is probably in a way equivalent. I think we actually raise a really good point. The business versus economy class travel is a more interesting one because it's a wasting asset in a way that once your flight's finished. And it's a question I I, my wife often ask other people is, would you rather stay in a better hotel or fly a business class to get there if you had to choose one? Um, I'd definitely fly economy and stay in the better hotel myself. I'm, I presume
1: you're the same. Which is what your customers do. Well, let's not get into me. The only thing I spend money on is travel. That's why I say let's not get into me. Look, I, nothing interests me that costs money except travel. Like I really love um, traveling in a nice way, but your customers agree with you. They have a similar – and like just to be blunt, most of your customers will be poorer than you, But your, but your views – Unsurprisingly, align with that demographic, and so what you're effectively saying is is borne out by the data, which is most people place a much higher value on the holiday time than on the flight time, and presumably the way they justify it to themselves is, yeah, we're not going to sleep on the plane; it's kind of going to suck a bit, but that's okay. We've got six nights in this great hotel; we can recover, and it will be amazing. And I think that that makes a lot of sense, but but. Bernard Arnault would not call it luxury travel, not the business, I mean, the nature of it. He would call what we've just described premium travel because the price rises with the utility Mm. or the experience. Luxury travel would be there's a hotel you can go to and it costs – I've been to this hotel. I'm going to tell you which hotel this is. It it wasn't this expensive, but I'll tell you something that is luxury. But if you were paying $10,000 a night to go somewhere – and the hotel itself was not especially amazing, but everyone just knew that this thing was the thing that cost $10,000 a night and you going there and posting it on Instagram, maybe there's a celebrity there or whatever it is, that would be luxury. So when I once um, met when I once met Mark Cuban face-to-face, I think I had lunch with him. I spent a lot of time with him in Laguna Beach. Is this the cafe
0: where you had like the five litres of iced tea?
1: Yes, correct. Good memory in Southern California in Laguna Beach, the hotel I stayed in to meet up with him was um, called the Montage. That hotel cost one and a half or two thousand US dollars a night. and and this was like ten years ten years ago, yeah. seven years ago, and there was nothing special about the hotel. It was nice. It had a nice view. The room was mediocre. The bath didn't – the bath was kind of broken in it, to be honest. <sighs> there was nothing special about it. The thing about it was that it was the montage in Laguna Beach, and that is what people were paying for. That, to me, is luxury yeah. travel.
0: I think interesting. You talk, talk about LVMH. I think LVMH owned Bulgari, correct me if I'm wrong there, and that Bulgari – and Bulgari's also got a hotel business in partnership with Marriott, which Marriott has like 40 brands, one of them is Bulgari. <laughs> and they mm-hmm. run at really low occupancies and charge a huge amount of – so it's very much the LVA major model. We'll charge a heap and we, we don't care if it's full, which I, I hate. I hate hotels that don't run full and charge – a lot. It's a it's a strategy some hotels use. It's very rare, but some hotels do that strategy. very anti-luxury. We, we're utilitarian luxury. We try. And, we our pitch to hotels is you're trading at seventy percent. We'll get you eighty percent. We'll make you lots more profit. That's what we tell hotels. I hate hotels that are happy to run at thirty or forty percent to maintain that so called brand. And LV Max does that in hotels. So Berno does that. It's been a super profitable um, way of him to operate his business, but I hate it. And so we've got hotel rooms that are lying empty because this guy thinks it's a more efficient use of capital to do it. And that that so again, I'm not criticizing him making money. I'm criticizing a society that 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 allows
1: this, that allows the richest
0: person in the world to create this. But why didn't he build
1: Yeah, because one of the most interesting things about luxury brands. So he like I just keep emphasizing, because my direct consumer, I focus on like accessible premium products. That's what I know how to build. I don't know how to build luxury. If you say to me, build the next um, Louis Vuitton, firstly, I don't think you can build it from scratch to start off with. I think it has to it needs heritage. But secondly, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. But the thing is about it is that there's this weird economic, like high wire act, which is you want to grow revenue. It's unbelievably profitable businesses. You want to grow revenue, but you have to maintain exclusivity. So you can't just sell to the demand. You have to sell below the demand. And so every now and again, there's this temptation, which is, oh, let's just sell to the demand. But that's ruining the luxury nature of your brand. And so why? the question is, which you can't answer, but if Bernard Arnault is going to build these hotels with, with a Bulgari brand, instead of just having these huge prices and leaving them half empty, why didn't he just stick 20 rooms in them? Like why doesn't he reduce the the number, the quantity? That's what I would
0: have done. Which is the Amman, which is what Amman do yes. essentially. So Amman probably one of the most, if not the most luxurious hotel Well, that's brand a
1: luxury course. brand. There is nothing, yeah. it's very nice, but it is not the 10 times nicer than the stuff yeah. that is one-tenth of the price.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just on, on, that, on the business class flying, I, so I, I'm, a, as you know, a points junkie. So I'll book my points flights a year out and, and never pay cash for flights. And I was flying Qatar. um, over to London a few days ago, obviously using points. And I say in the Q Suite for the have you seen the Q Suite before, which is the guitar well, business
1: guitar I don't, fly guitar. I don't um, fly guitar.
0: Uh so it was the first time I've ever flown guitar. It's the best business product I've been in in mm. probably ever. It's almost sort of called semi-first class level of service. They, they have no first class. I know about those suites. Yeah. Door they've got doors. We well, have like four the four of you are in your own sort of thing, so you sort of it's like, it's not like a big Singapore airline, sorry, but it's, I I found it incredible. Like it was the best business class product I've been on, but I don't you've obviously traveled a lot in the last 18 months. I haven't seen barely any spare seats on any airline, be it business or economy or first in the last 18 months. There's probably 20% of this business class cabin empty, which is really unusual. Uh, Economy was completely full. I went and had a look, but business was 80% to 80% at best, maybe 75%, which is, I found, and this is a busy week to travel. This is just before Christmas. Really unusual uh, and surprising.
1: Well, I don't fly Qatar because, you know, it's nice that you flew the airline that hosts Hamas in their country. Um, I'll tell you something about Qatar versus Emirates that you'll find interesting yep. being in the travel industry. Qatar has bet all of their chips on business class and neglected first class. Emirates has bet all of their chips on first class and neglected business class. That's probably right. So, business class on Emirates has got three seats in the middle of the cabin. There's a middle yeah. seat in business class. Well, I think it depends Almost, on the plane. Depends well, on the plane. this is an A380. Yeah, oh, really? It's so the best plane. Yeah. Yep. There's a middle seat and or unheard of in, yeah. in the top tier of business yep. class nowadays, Whereas from what I've read, the Qatar first-class experience is not any better than the business-class yep. Q-suites. I don't, you couldn't really and get so much better, what we're to be seeing, honest. There's nowhere to go. Well, what you're seeing is this um, different airlines pursuing different premium strategies. Singapore Airlines has like um, probably their first-class their first class suite is equal best first-class seat in the world yep. suite with Emirates. But business yep. class hasn't been updated for a while. I actually Emirates
0: now they charge you two thousand dollars to redeem a business class points seats. So I refuse to do I it. I know. Um, so I've been you should Emirates fly first and, class
1: yeah. if you're redeeming points. I think that's what you, you can, should do, not with your a, kids.
0: Yeah. Um, you don't have enough points. No, I can't get four. You can't get four first class seats on Emirates anyway. Not that oh, do you don't it want, want, you want to take your kids? I mean,
1: the one. Um, I mean, your kids are already ruined, by the way. Yeah, 100%, 100%, I guess But uh, first class is going to be the point of no return for your kids. Like, you don't want to do that to them. But um, the reason I tell you though you should do it is, I think like you got to figure out the best use of things. And people with points think about the best use as kind of bang for buck in simple terms, like in business. But first class, you're not going to want to pay for that. You're never going to pay. You, you will never pay for that. Perhaps so. you're only, only pay for business. Expense. Yeah. Yeah. And so your you're, and so the incremental cost of first in points is often not very much. And so, you might as well have that experience. That's how I feel about points.
0: No, you actually sometimes find first class on Singapore cheaper than business. That's right. Because there's different tiers. I I I took a a suite to Singapore because I booked it early enough and it was cheaper than business. So, I did it um, and it was incredible. But I I 100% wouldn't pay cash. But more my point was interesting that we talk about airlines. Airlines have this incredible two years since COVID that $36 billion, I think, airlines made across the world. They were basically made zero before that, of pre-COVID. So, had this incredible run. And it's in the Qantas share prices dip. Virgin can't, haven't been able to IPO.
1: Virgin says 50% of their flights are delayed now, I've just read today.
0: Is this Virgin or Qantas?
1: Virgin, 50% yeah. delayed.
0: I must just say, I went on the, I flew guitar, but I went in the Qantas lounge, because Qantas obviously got a much better lounge in Melbourne. And you know, as you know, I've been critical of Qantas in recent times, but... I'm, I'm, I think you may be right there. The, the service levels in the Qantas lounge was unbelievable. Like, clearly, it's been a – and this is a, a, a doffer the hat to – it had to be Vanessa because she's the CEO. But the, they had a real customer – and I wasn't flying them. And they were so friendly and nice and suggesting – we talked about customer service at the beginning of the show. The customer service I got in that lounge was next – and I haven't seen this customer service in a Qantas lounge ever, like certainly not in the last five years. The, the service levels were – so good. There must have been an edict say, we need you to treat our customers really well because this can't have been just coincidence because there was a guy called Tim who was at the front who was unbelievable and there was people, everybody serving. Somebody brought me a drink. I didn't mean, Which I, I, lounge was this? Melbourne First Class International Lounge. Okay. Did um, well, you get that's, through status? Yeah. Um, and that was, I, I can't believe- the change for Qantas who you would have walked in there a year ago and they would have barely looked at you and whatever, to now that the service you got was as good as any I've ever received in a lounge anywhere. It was unbelievable.
1: So I've always found that lounge to have great service. However, (laughs) I don't know how you're going to feel about this. I don't really go into lounges anymore. So when I'm leaving with Qantas from Melbourne or Sydney, the Sydney lounge, the Qantas lounge, I think is even a bit nicer. I just, remember I've said to you that I think there's this false economy of travel where people are so desperate to get into the Qantas first lounge, but actually if it was just a restaurant and yeah, an you would never pay okay, to go into it, bucks. you'd say it's a bit yeah. shitty. And so for me yeah. now, I'll rather walk around the airport, get a bit really? of exercise, look in some shops, and, there, and just sit at the gate with the other people than sit in the sit in the lounge. Yeah, is that crazy? So that like I, I just it doesn't do it for oh, I think me. I
0: think a good lounges. I think lounges are highly overrated, and I've yeah, talked about think they are. Being I think lounges, but I think but I, was, I wasn't talking about the utility of lounge. I think there is still some utility in lounges, but, and I think Qantas do lounges. Qantas and Emirates do lounges clearly the best of anyone in the world. Um, and Qatar was okay in Doha, but more I was more talking about the, the, the change in service level. I was in the Qantas first class lounge, like. Six weeks ago to go to a, a Bali conference, and I, I, I didn't find it great. Something's happened in the last month at Qantas that has changed, and um, for the better, much better. And it's uh, uh, I do don't think I'm so critical of, especially Joyce, but—and I was sceptical of Vanessa, but she's so far um, completely proven me wrong from what I've seen. And it's a—and and I've, I've actually heard this feedback a few times that Qantas—and clearly it's not that virgin level of customer service. But if Qantas can get that customer service fixed. Uh, which they're on the way to doing. Uh, And it's a small sample size of me being in the lounge once, but I I was massively impressed.
1: Well, that's very um, interesting. So I think um, travel provides a window into the economy that very few other industries do. Certainly post-COVID, the expenditure on premium travel was insane, insane. It feels to me that it's starting to pull back, even though there's still capacity constraints, like a lot of it's not back to what it was. And, you know, over the course of the next – I mean, you can't really tell us your luxury escape results, but you should kind of just tell us, like, over the course of the next uh, uh, few months, like, are you seeing a change in the purchasing behaviour, price points, nature of what people are buying? Because I tend to agree, like, the flights that I was on – like there was some space in the in the premium cabins. There's no doubt about it. Whereas previously there was not. On Emirates, yeah, there was not. And now there was some space. There was no space in the cabin when I was flying LL into Tel Aviv. That flight was completely full. Yeah. Because everyone wants to get back into Tel Aviv. Yeah. But in general, yeah. yeah, I found that um that it feels like it's come off the boil a bit. And so this I just want to say this episode has been a lot of uh, contrary information, like I tell you what I, I don't know if I can give an episode summary. In fact, I never do, but I just want to summarise what we've talked about and what it's said because it's quite contradictory. On the one hand, we've seen a transaction with Zoe Foster Blake that really marks the end of the COVID boom, and there's been a few of those, right? But like yeah. that was a particularly insane transaction, and we've seen the end of yeah. that. And then, um, you know, you spent this time. You spoke about London and the fact that London feels really busy. I didn't tell you, like, how I hate cities that get dark early. I find the darkness so depressing. Um, (laughs) Who who doesn't? Yeah, that's um, terrible. But then, you know, on the one hand, like, yeah, okay, London feels like it's vibrant. On the flip side, these watch prices are going down, which is a mark of, like, people being rich or not, and – Yep. We're talking about travel, and what we're seeing with travel is it does feel like some of the premium end of travel is starting to come off. Just the very beginning of it, and so well, I think, I think it's consistent.
0: I don't think I, think, I don't think there's any. I think what well, I think the consistent theme across everything you said, which is a really nice synopsis, is things revert to the mean, and we had this. Bizarre period where too many people were flying business class. You couldn't get a seat for love or money. Business class seats are $20,000 to go to the US or Europe, which is ridiculous. You know
1: Qantas said that, that you couldn't get a first class seat. Yeah. Qantas said you them. could not get a first yeah. class seat. 100%
0: uh, for both. So they used to give away the points all yep. the time. Now forget about it. Yeah. So, and you can never, re- it's really hard to redeem points. And I I, I, I struggled to redeem points all year. Um, but I think the, the theme is consistent. And you asked about luxury. So like We're seeing our demand has been consistent because we're a, a, a value product. So if you want to travel, you're better off going and buying through us because you're going to save thirty mm-hmm. or forty percent, and you're well, somewhere really nice. It's not inconsistent. None of that's inconsistent, and people and having economy being full on Qatar and still an two and a half thousand dollar ticket. It's not cheap, but economy being full and business the ridiculous ten thousand dollar business seats being a bit emptier. That all makes sense, and expensive watches going down. That makes sense because. All that stuff was pretty stupid that people shouldn't be spending money on. And we've got higher debt loads now. I think it got the era era of free money. The stock market contradicts me to an extent, but the era of free money is over. And now people are being – there's a flight to value. So I think people are still spending. They're spending on stuff that gives
1: them value and not stupid things that aren't valuable. You know who I've said this to you before privately, but the person we've got to get on and talk to is Leonard Hammersfeld, whose business buzz with Barry Gold does the in-flight amenities for business and first class on a lot of the major airlines. Nobody has as much insight into the luxury world as they do because their supply to airlines literally matches the demand that airlines are seeing in premium cabins. And on the other side of those transactions, they're doing deals with like Toomey and Alessi and whoever else To put the kits together, and so they know those brands as well. So Leonard will be an interesting person, and he's also fun to talk to, but we should get him on, and he'll give us an interesting insight into this world. Yeah, I've really liked this episode, Adam. It's kept me entertained.
0: Uh, It has been a great episode. (laughs) Well, uh, unlike other pods, we are not stopping through the break. I've I've dragged a deer out from this from his gaming next week and we'll- There's we'll, plenty of time to recording game. the up-to-date news. There's lots of news. We're, actually, we're going to do some predictions. We're going to hold off our predictions till next week. So we'll do some predictions next week. Uh, and lots of stuff to talk about. Again, that was a great episode. Thanks, idea for-
1: You should let me do three. I told you this. You should let me do three-year predictions, not one year, because- one year predictions—that's just in the noise. But three years, well, we'll
0: discuss this offline. But we won't be doing three year predictions because we need to go back to them at the end of the year. So the whole point, isn't it? It's not to prove who's right and who's wrong. It's just to crystallise a conversation. But we'll discuss this offline. All
1: right. Or do you want to just stimulate conversation? All right. Well, I'll tell you something. My the quality of my one year predictions is going to have the level of precision of a coin toss.
0: Yeah. Well, so be it. Well, one of us. Well, you might get some right, some wrong, but but. If you can get 51% of predictions right, that's probably a good
1: result, but we'll chat about
0: them in the next couple of weeks.
1: I'll be positive by saying I look forward to the predictions episode, but I'm not telling the truth. See you guys.
0: Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.